Parkland, Broward Schools, and a new ambassador from Miami. This is the South Florida Roundup from WLRN. I'm your new host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll look back at the Parkland shooting. Next week marks five years since that tragedy traumatized our community. I'll talk to a student journalist who survived it. We'll also examine the Broward Public Schools dysfunction and how it might help plans to greatly expand private school vouchers. And finally, in a week when we saw Nicaragua release hundreds of political prisoners, we'll talk with Miami's own Frank Mora. He's the U.S.'s new ambassador to the Organization of American States. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Next Tuesday marks five years since one of the most tragic days South Florida has ever witnessed. On February 14, 2018, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz massacred 17 students and adults at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland with an AR-15-style rifle. It was one of the deadliest school shootings in U.S. history. Cruz was sentenced to life in prison last fall, but neither the pain and grief nor the debate about access to military-style weapons has disappeared. Parkland students themselves mounted a campaign that's led to new gun control measures here in Florida. They include a red flag law to keep guns away from persons deemed a threat, as many say Cruz should have been. One of the students who'd come in contact with Cruz before the shooting and considered him a menace was Ariana Otero. She was a 15-year-old sophomore the day the massacre happened. She's now a student journalist at Florida International University, and she often reports on the aftermath of the Parkland tragedy. She joins me now in the studio. Ariana, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. I realize that in the case of something as terrifying as this, five years is not a really long time. You were in your school yearbook class Mm -hmm. when the shooting began. Yes. But what still stands out for you more than anything else about that day and how it affected you? I think for sure the things that stand out and still stick with me today is just kind of the terror that you feel in that moment. Um, You feel kind of helpless. You don't know what's going on. You feel lost. I remember not knowing where my um, friends were where my little brother was who was at the middle school next door just a sense of desperation of panic of chaos and even still to this day um, the stuff that sticks with me and carries with me is just kind of the trauma that you carry day in and day out that other people may not think about or know but survivors and people who still are at the school people who have graduated live with on a day-to-day basis do you still remember you, you speak of the trauma in that moment, but I would imagine in the moment, um, it's, it's, it's sort of uh, an out-of-body experience in many ways, as, as other survivors has, have described it to me. What was it like in those moments as you were you know, moving around the campus and, and, and slowly beginning to appreciate what was happening and, and how to get out of it? For sure. Um, I just remember uh, when my class had left thinking that it was just a normal fire drill or a fire alarm. 
um, which we had pinned down to culinary because we have a culinary program. So, oh, maybe something might have happened in the kitchen. It right. happens. Mm-hmm. Um, when our teachers tell us to start moving, you know, some alarms are raised, but, you know, you trust your teachers, you trust your authorities. So you, we started moving, started going. And when we hit a certain point that we thought was safe enough away, they in the nicest way, we're yelling at us to keep moving, keep going, keep going. And all the more alarms are starting to raise. Like it was 20 minutes before school let out. So what's going on that we can't just go back to our classrooms? Like I have to take the bus. (laughs) Like you're thinking about everything all at once. Um, And when it dawned on me, when finally the murmurs were, there's a shooter on campus. um, It's just the, a sinking feeling just, everything falls to the pit of your stomach mm-hmm. and you're looking around you is he with us in the crowd right now where is he right now what about my friends like are people safe like am i safe so it's just it goes from slight alarm slight worry to an absolute just mind-boggling experience well and today especially in the wake of parkland we have so many drills mm-hmm. and and uh, practices almost for for this sort of this sort of nightmare, but looking back, would you say there really is any way that a person can prepare themselves for a moment like that? I really don't think so and don't believe, because as much as you practice and you try to get yourself in that mindset, nothing will feel the same as immediately being in that moment. I know two weeks prior to, around two weeks prior to the shooting, we had put in new safety protocols for the event of shooting, bomb threat, whatever, and even that didn't help. I mean, it helped in the sense of, you know, teachers had their doors already locked, so no one had to go running to do that. Um, Students knew where to hide in their classrooms, but as for emotionally, nothing will prepare you for that. Looking back after five years, are there any recommendations that you might convey to schools and school districts as to how to improve preparation for this sort of thing? For school districts, I don't think so, because, I mean, we're seeing it now. I mean, take the shooting that happened with a six-year-old in Virginia that shot his teacher, and now they're implementing metal detectors and things. I mean, Cruz came from outside of the school. He wasn't a student on campus that they could have checked his backpack. Yeah. So it really, yes and no. I mean, try to be as prepared as possible. Do go through those drills, but at the same time, I don't know if there's anything more we can do. You knew one of the students who was killed that day, Nicholas Dorrit. Yes. He was a senior on the swim team. Mm -hmm. What else do you remember about him? He was a senior on the swim team, and I had him in my chemistry class that year. Um, And I can tell you from being in the class, he was... um, loud he talked to everybody or he made his presence known and you know he would crack jokes and the entire class just kind of like laughs and goofs off and the teacher's like hey like you know chill Mm -hmm. but um (laughs) he definitely was very out there and outgoing um and I remember unfortunately um two a couple days before uh he had just signed to go to um Indianapolis Indianapolis University University Um, for swimming. On a swimming scholarship, mm -hmm. right, yeah. I think it was full ride. He was ecstatic. He was coming into the classroom. Teacher, I got to leave early. It's signing day. Um, You know, like, I got to make it known. Like, da-da-da-da. He had to go to his car to grab things. Like, he was essentially bouncing around the walls, ecstatic for this moment. Um, And 
unfortunately. Yeah, that's the sort of energy we lost mm -hmm. that day. Um, as I mentioned, you'd encountered the shooter on a few occasions beforehand. Yes. Was it apparent to you that he would have been someone identified as a threat with weapons under the red fl flag law we now have in Florida as a result of what he did? Absolutely. Without a doubt in my mind. I mean, I never knew him personally, but, you know, you kind of see people while you're walking around campus. And I remember the year before, a freshman myself, um, I remember seeing him in the hallway and he was carrying around a Publix bag and that was his book bag. He was not allowed to have a backpack. And you're like, that's weird. But, you know, you don't think much of it. You just see him in the hallway. What do I care? Mm -hmm. um, I remember he got in trouble at lunch for just randomly going up to a kid and punching them. And he wasn't allowed to have a backpack because? Probably because of mm -hmm. worries of, I guess, what, like he, what, what he, he might could be bring. keeping in them. Yeah. So he was, he was sort of flagged in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, in advance. Yeah, yeah. already. Right. Um, and and what then were your basic you know your 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 basic uh, recollections of him at that point? Um, I just remember entering my sophomore year and not seeing him anymore and just kind of yeah. like oh great. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember probably about the time that the new um, security implementations were being put into our school. One of my friends in the class that we were in just randomly mentions, do you guys remember that one kid referring to Cruz? Right. Do you remember that one kid that was like really weird and he had something to him? Imagine if he was in these classrooms right now, like taking notes about what to do. Like yeah. to, to even say that and to even mention that, mm -hmm. everybody was aware that this kid could do something. Right. So let's talk about the student-led efforts that resulted in some striking gun control reform in a state where the National Rifle, Rifle Association holds pretty strong sway. Not just the red flag law, but other measures like raising the age to legally purchase a firearm like, like the shooter's AR-15 style rifle mm -hmm. from 18 to 21. Do you still feel that you guys sparked a fairly remarkable movement, not only here, but across the country? Sparking a movement? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you look at the footage, the videos from when kids were walking out sometime in April following that, when kids attended the March for Our Lives, the national response was crazy. And even we got an international response. Schools yeah. from all over were sending us banners and things to hang up at Douglas to kind of show their love and support. And we got stuff from, I think, Germany at one point. Um, I yeah, think, you, got, you guys really changed the game yeah, in ways that we hadn't absolutely. seen after other school shootings like Sandy Hook, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so we definitely, I'd say, sparked the movement and caused the moment. Um, and I'd say that it's still kicking, um, still going, not to the scale that maybe back in 2018 it was, mm -hmm. but absolutely you see the younger generation pointing things out what was the sense of purpose you felt when you were in events like the, the March for Life, or the Marches for Life, I, sh I should say, in the yes. aftermath? Uh, how, did that, how did that galvanize you personally and as a community? Um, I think the first one, uh, I attended the one, not in Washington, but the one at mm -hmm. home in Parkland. Um, and it was deeply personal. And it was gratifying to see the response you were getting that I'm not alone in this people care yeah. I'm not going to just go back to school tomorrow or whenever and be blown under the rug um, and I know going to the Parkland March it was 
comforting to have, you know, your family and friends and your neighbors surrounding you. Parkland truly became a family after what happened. We were already a tight-knit community. It's pretty small. It's, you know, your neighbors and different things. But after that, I mean, I can go anywhere and then talk to somebody and be like, hey, you're from Parkland. And then you just have that instant connection. Um, So Every tragedy can have its silver lining in that sense. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Next week marks five years since the deadly Parkland shooting. We're looking back at the tragedy and the future in its wake with survivor and FIU student journalist Ariana Otero. But Ariana, your personal efforts related to gun violence after the Parkland tragedy weren't so much in the legislative arena, right? Tell us about what you felt most compelled to get involved with. I mean blatantly journalism. I wanted to, the way that Douglas struck me, um, I knew this is exactly what I was supposed to be doing. I was in yearbook at the time and, um, you know, just getting my feet wet with the journalism world and stuff. But after that happened and watching what was going on, I knew exactly that this is what I needed to do. But there was also mm-hmm. uh, there was there was also another activity yes. you took on a very important sort of therapy oriented mm-hmm. uh, uh, project. S- absolutely. So I was a part of Shine MSD, which is a creative arts therapy um, organization that sought to help kids through um, the Parkland thing with creative arts therapy rather than right. you know the sit down. Mm-hmm. And as well, I know. About in senior year, um, the Saugus shooting happened, and my English teacher reached out to an English teacher over there, and her students were sophomores, so how old we were when Douglas happened. So I know I reached out to those kids, and I still have their numbers or their Snapchats or Instagrams. Um, And I know after Oxford as well, I tried to reach out to kids upon seeing different things. How would you help them with art therapy to to get through that kind of trauma? So for art therapy, that was more of a... um, Douglas initiative but it was definitely just talking about the thing without talking about it and as well just taking what you could not say and could not delve into and turning that into writing a song or making an art piece and just opening up those channels of communication whether verbally or non-verbally and just showing that you know like you're you will be okay in whatever way that you cope through this you will get through it um and with the kids that i reached out to just giving them that hand of Mm -hmm. you know not many people know what we went through so when you have your rough day when you hear that loud noise and you respond i will be there for you Mm -hmm. for you to talk through that and essentially just have someone to listen to no that, that that that's great but sadly, that therapy work you do has only become more important and more essential because in the past five years, school shootings, including the massacre at Uvalde Elementary mm-hmm. in Texas last year, have only become more and not less uh, commonplace since Parkland. You said something interesting to me this week about your own personal response to that madness, yeah. that ongoing madness. Absolutely. So. In an unfortunate sense, maybe it's the desensitization or just the lack of surprise. Whenever you see the next school shooting, the next mass shooting, you just are kind of hands up in the air. You're like, well, if change hasn't happened since, 
I unfortunately don't think change in a huge sense, in a huge way, is going to happen anytime soon. And um, But I do remember when Uvalde happened, that like really shocked me and like shook me again. And I don't know if it was the sense of those were little kids, as a Latina myself, mm-hmm. those were little kids that looked like me. I remember... Right. Your family is originally from Puerto Rico. Yes, mm-hmm. um, we're originally from Puerto Rico. So I remember seeing those kids and seeing myself in them and just being shaken so much by that, as well as I have family members and little cousins that are that age, and you just kind of like realize, once again, the gravity of the situation. Right. And even what else really shook me about it was the response that it got, seeing how police didn't do or act as quickly as they should have, how they held parents back, how apparently, I believe this is correct, that they had mm-hmm. ICE at the schools trying to get parents. And so... Well, the police response was a big issue in yeah. the Parkland shooting Absolutely, as well. Yeah. So you obviously drew parallels between the Uvalde exactly. experience and what you all experienced in those moments at Parkland. Exactly. I remember that was a huge topic of conversation of, oh, well, the police um, presence at Parkland didn't do anything he I think he just avoided the building or ran in and ran out I can't quite remember Um, and the same you see the lack of response and it's just infuriating there are children that need your help this is your job you to protect and to serve Mm -hmm. and you are neither protecting nor serving and it's just an anger and a frustration no 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 that's uh, that's completely understandable And of course, back here in Florida, whatever gun control gains were made after Parkland now feel sort of overshadowed by a new bill in the state legislature that would allow folks to carry concealed firearms in public without a license. In fact, it passed its first committee hurdle this week. If it becomes law, what would that mean for you and other Parkland survivors? It's terrifying. I mean, already when you go into a public space, you're checking your exits, you're checking the surroundings um, to give yourself that sense of calm of I will be safe, I'll be okay. But to know now if this passes that anybody could have anything at any moment and anything could happen at any moment, it's terrifying. It's, I mean, that's just all it is. It's terrifying. How, How do I know that I'm going to be safe wherever I am? Well, in that context, as as a Parkland survivor who was part of that movement that really did spark some significant gun control measures, you know, in the wake of what happened five yeah. years ago, because of this, do you and and other measures around the country, do you feel now that the country is sort of backsliding? Absolutely, it's one step forward and three steps back. I mean, mm-hmm. as much as you do, and as much as we've pushed, and as much as truly we've yelled and we screamed for this stuff, yeah, um, to see all of that just being washed away and taken mm-hmm. over by this it's it fuels a fire um because you know there's more to do and you can do it right. but at the same time it's an exhausting feeling of i've just done this like i've just crossed these hurdles yeah and now when you see the light at the end of the tunnel the tunnel is much farther than you realize that's really all it is it's just mm-hmm. you just kind of feel defeated well that 
Still, though, that brings us to your main mission these days, yes. which, as you mentioned before, is journalism. Absolutely. And you're, and you're reporting on these Parkland and gun-related issues for FIU's <laughs> Panther Now newspaper and its South Florida media network. Yes. You mentioned you wanted to be a journalist even before the 28 tragedy, right? Absolutely. What, 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 uh, I think you told me as far back as sixth grade, you, yep. knew you were go- <laughs> wanted to be the next, uh, the next big journalist. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I remember in sixth grade going up to my mom and going, Mom, I know exactly what I want to do with my life. And mm-hmm. she was like, okay, what is that? And I was like, journalism. She was like, great, I'll support you no matter what. Um, and so what's, I th- what, what sparked that? What brought that on? I think I had read um, a book in a class or something about these um, young female journalists, mm-hmm. um, these young student journalists, and was just kind of like, I want to do that. That That's cool. I can write stories and mm-hmm. I can tell this stuff. And I liked writing, so it seemed to go together. Um, and I started taking those steps towards that. Um, in mm-hmm. freshman year, I joined my journalism program at school. Sophomore year, I started with yearbook and would end up graduating with right. yearbook. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really was, a, and I remember counting down the years to till college, till I could start doing journalism in college. So mm-hmm. it was always just something that I had the passion for. And then with Douglas right. was all the more um, fueled to do. So let me ask you, how hard have you found it to remain objective as a reporter on these issues? I mean, is it difficult as a Parkland survivor to see and understand and give a fair shake to the gun rights folks, Mm -hmm. the Second Amendment folks, whom you need to engage Mm -hmm. in this kind of work? Um, I find it pretty easy to be objective because you kind of go into a work mode you're mm-hmm. focused on what you're supposed to do i'm supposed to tell my story regardless of what i personally feel um obviously you know you listen to people and you know whatever you think in your head but at the end of the day i have a job to do that is to tell your side and somebody else my side are the douglas side um and effectively tell that um but i know maybe not on a personal sense, but when you read other stories, um, you kind of, you know, read these things and you see as objective as they're trying to be, you can see just kind of like, oh, well, you know, I don't know about all that or this and that. Not to critique people's stories, but you know, you read things and sometimes you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Well, it sounds sounds like you've got a good, good handle on it. Again, I'm Tim Paget. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're looking back five years after the deadly Parkland shooting with student survivor uh, and student journalist Ariana Otero. Finally, Ariana, again, staying on the journalism, yeah. you know, your, your, your future career, and we all look forward to your work soon. Thank you. With the fifth fifth anniversary Mm -hmm. of the Parkland tragedy coming up next Tuesday and with reporters bound to descend on Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and the rest of the community there. I want you to remind folks in our profession Mm -hmm. of something you mentioned to me about how to approach stories like this or rather how not to approach stories like this. Um, I mean personally I know people have a job to do, but personally to the people that are probably going to camp out in front of Douglas that day or for the next week, I'd personally just say don't. The kids going there and the teachers going there are just trying to go to school. They're just trying to get in, get out. They already have to see the building every day. Yeah. Um, but I know um, in what to do and what not to do, I remember when the shooting happened, seeing 
photographers shoving cameras into grieving kids' faces. I remember um, um, TV stations lined up in front of the school, and then the second the bell rang to let dismissal go, um, they'd run up to kids to try to grab sound bites and stuff. And we were 15, six, 14 to 18 years old. Right. We are worried. We Our original worries were about SAT, about, oh, I have to catch the bus or... You know, like, how do I ask out this cute boy in my class? And then to have your worldview shattered in a matter of moments. And my worry is no longer SAT. My worry is, can I make it through school safely? Can I make it through life safely to realize that this happens everywhere? Um, And Mm -hmm. I just want people to realize that we're people at the end of the day. As much as, you know, I understand you have a job to do. People just want to go to school and people are tired we want to grieve personally, but also be able to move on. And that's hard when I I know February 14th, I'm going to turn on the TV and the only thing the entire day is going to be Douglas stuff. And just remember that these are people at the end of the day mm-hmm. and they are exhausted. As much as you have a job to do, right. these people just want to live their lives and move forward. Well, it's good to know that we'll have a journalist like you in the profession soon in the future <laughs> to bring you. that more sensitive approach t- to what we do. Thank Ariana, you. thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come, the Broward School Board cuts ties with a superintendent. How does this play into attempts to expand the state's school voucher programs? Call us at 800-743-WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Broward County Public Schools has a new superintendent, the district's third one in less than two years. On Tuesday, the Broward School Board parted ways with now former superintendent Vicki Cartwright. Board members, at the recommendation of one of Governor Ron DeSantis's recent appointees, chose an interim superintendent, Dr. Erlene Smiley. But she can't take the position immediately, so someone else will be the acting superintendent in the meantime. The ongoing chaos and dysfunction in the state's second largest school district would seem to bolster the efforts of GOP lawmakers in Tallahassee. They're pushing a bill to make private school vouchers available not just to lower income families, but to all Florida families, rich or poor. Is this all part of a Republican project to phase out public public education in Florida? And are troubled public school systems like Broward simply making it easier to do that? What's your take on the situation at Broward? Would you choose a voucher to send your child to private schools? Let us know your thoughts. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining us to talk about all this is WLRN's local government accountability reporter, Joshua Ceballos, and from Tallahassee, Valerie Crowder from our sister station, WFSU. Thanks, both of you, for joining the Roundup today. Happy to be here. Thanks, Tim. Josh, I want to start with you to talk about that often confusing Broward School Board meeting on Tuesday. What made it so confusing? Yeah, so there was a lot of things that were going on that the members of the public and also the school board members were confused about. One of those things being the different terms to refer to the 
different kinds of superintendents. Yeah. So now you have a superintendent that just left and then they had to select an interim superintendent who would be here in the uh, meantime. Yeah. But there's also the acting superintendent who has to fill the seat while Erlene Smiley is getting onboarded and fingerprinted and background right. checked and, and all those things. that's going to take... That's going to take a couple weeks. Right. So, okay. yeah, yeah, the the acting superintendent right now is uh, Valerie Wanza, and she's going to be in there for a couple of weeks. Right. What what were some of the provisions of Cartwright's exit agreement that, that, that stuck out in all of this? Yeah, so that was one of the big topics of discussion was Valerie Cartwright's exit agreement, how, the, how much the district was going to pay her in severance, and a lot of different provisions. So, I mean, the first thing is that the total compensation that she would have gotten, everything included, was like three hundred and sixty-six thousand dollars, mm-hmm. something to the tune of that. And one of the thing, big things that stood out from that was a sixty-day consultant agreement, where basically after she left, she mm-hmm. would be still working for the school board as a consultant, helping the new superintendent for sixty days, right. and that would have been to the tune of about ninety-eight thousand dollars, everything included, but sick time and benefits and good, good work if you can get it yeah 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 that's really good work i'm almost a hundred thousand dollars for 60 days it's yeah. pretty good and that was kind of an issue for some people members of the public said that that was way too much and um even some members of the school board and eventually after some discussion they did remove the uh consultant agreement um from her package said that they needed a clean break from her they needed the new person to just mm-hmm. have a fresh new start uh but she's still getting paid over two hundred thousand. Right, but Cartwright had apparently made some allegations that made her situation even worse. Right. Yeah. So apparently, during the negotiations between herself, her attorneys, and the school board about her severance package, she made some allegations that she was being discriminated against for her race and her gender. Cartwright is a white Caucasian woman, by the way, mm-hmm. and. She made these allegations and said that she had seen this and she kind of sat on it. So members of the public said she needs to be out right now. One person said as soon as she said that the cat is out of the bag, she's made herself implicit because she should have reported this. If it was real, she should have reported it before. So people wanted her out. Mm -hmm. So Broward's new interim school superintendent, as you mentioned, is Dr. Erlene Smiley. Who is she and, and why did the school board choose her? So yeah, Erlene Smiley, she's she's interesting because she's sort of a Broward Schools veteran. She mm-hmm. obviously yeah. She started as a as a as a teacher there many moons ago. She worked her way up to principal and then she was deputy superintendent of Broward Schools until she left in 2010 to work for, uh, as superintendent for a small school district in South Carolina. And then she's uh, for the past 10 years she's worked as a consultant. So she she's got some history in Broward, but she hasn't worked here in in about 10 or 13 years. But she was she was chosen upon the recommendation of who on the board. And this this is actually kind of significant, right? Right. So she was recommended by Tori Alston, who is one of the uh, Governor DeSantis appointees to the school board. And he said uh, that that Smiley was his principal when he was growing up. And he recommended her highly. And so he was very much pushing for her to be the new superintendent. However, she came on the recommendation of a lot of people as well. Members of the public, members of the uh, teachers union also said that she she could do the job, that she was a good candidate. Is there any chance she could end up being Broward's new permanent school superintendent? Right. No. So that was some of the discussion as well uh, on Tuesday that 
they were going back and forth, the school board members, about whether the interim superintendent could apply to be the permanent superintendent. And at, at the end of the day, they said that she could not. So she'll only be around until July, uh, basically, because that's when they want to put in a new superintendent permanently. And so we, we wait for July then? Yes. Right. Okay. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Um, Valerie, I want to look at the larger macro education issues here with you. This week's Broward chaos obviously comes on top of all the other problems the district has been mired in. Those include a grand jury investigation into financial and security scandals, which which led to Governor DeSantis appointing new board members last year, like uh, Alston that, that Josh was just mentioning here. Is it your sense, Valerie, that this sort of public schools mess helps Republican lawmakers in Tallahassee make their case that Florida's private school vouchers program needs to be expanded as a new bill moving through the House aims to do? Well, I'm not sure that this particular example of what's going on in Broward County with the school district there is helping Republicans make their case, but they have been citing issues that students are having in some public schools in Florida as reason to expand the school voucher program here and to keep it going and keep it strong. So definitely issues that are happening in public schools. And a lot of those are things like, you know, the the school not being able to accommodate students with certain disabilities or just um, teachers in certain public schools not uh, maybe having too many students and not being able to focus on a particular student enough. So these are the kinds of stories that we're hearing Mm -hmm. um, from supporters of this measure. Now, you and I both know that, I mean, Florida has been sort of a laboratory, a school choice laboratory ever since Jeb Bush was governor, you know, 20 years ago. Is that an accurate way of putting it? Oh, yeah, definitely. This issue goes way, way back in Florida, for sure. Mm -hmm. But what exactly does HB1, called the School Choice Bill, um, what what makes it different from the current school voucher system in Florida? Well, as you mentioned at the top, Tim, uh, this measure would basically get rid of the income limits that are in place right now for the state's uh, current um, voucher program. And uh, essentially every K-12 student in the state who's eligible to attend public school, regardless of how much money their families make, um, would qualify for a voucher up to $7,000 to attend private school. Mm -hmm. Now, the voucher would also cover education-related expenses, and they've expanded those as well to also cover the cost of homeschooling. Um, But it it would cover costs like private school, uh, private tutoring, excuse me, and testing fees. and and really just what this does is is again it, it eliminates the the income caps and so this means that students who even students who are currently enrolled in private school mm-hmm. and are paying out of pocket because their families can afford to pay out of pocket they would also become eligible right. for a school voucher under this program and democrats have really criticized that aspect of it because basically it means that the state would be required to subsidize the education of children of millionaires and billionaires in the state. Right. And on top of that, has anybody calculated what the program's total price tag would be for the state? Well, it's still unclear how much it would cost, but there is an estimate that's been put out there 
the uh, Florida Policy Institute has estimated that it would cost $4 billion to start in its first year. Now, the bill has already cleared one committee hurdle. Does it look likely to become law? Certainly, it looks likely to pass in the legislature where Republicans do have a supermajority. Now, what's interesting about that is that Governor Ron DeSantis, even though he said that he supports the policy of universal school choice, he hasn't really made up his mind yet about um, how the, how the measure would be funded. And mm -hmm. so uh, that part of the bill that uh, would allow students who are currently enrolled in private school and are paying out of pocket right. uh, for the for that tuition. Um, DeSantis hasn't really made his mind up on whether he thinks that that's a good idea or not, or if this should just be for students who are in public school or students who currently qualify for vouchers in private school right now. Right. And Florida isn't the only state that's sort of mired in this. I, 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 I think Oklahoma, for example, is also uh, embedded in this debate. Um, but as you mentioned before, critics, especially Democrats, say this is just part of the Republicans' campaign to undermine public education in favor of private education. Is, is that an exaggeration? Well, I think they're really focusing on the effect that this could have on public schools in the state and that it's kind of refocusing funding on um, school vouchers instead of those dollars going to public schools. And of course, if public school students choose to uh, take advantage of this voucher program and they start attending a private school, for example, that money would follow them away from the public school they were attending and uh, follow them through the voucher to that private school. Uh, so so that's kind of what it would do. But Republicans are saying that, you know, the state's public schools are strong, that they don't see this happening, having a, a negative impact on public schools in Florida. The bill sponsor, Republican Representative Kaylee Tuck of Highlands County. Mm -hmm. She says that the state has very strong public schools and she doesn't think it would cause a mass exodus from public schools. So mm -hmm. they do. Republicans do seem focused on the issue of choice. Right. Uh, but they really aren't they really aren't attacking public schools as mm -hmm. a whole. But in your coverage, your coverage, Valerie, I found one of the more interesting points is that even if the new school choice bill becomes law, tuition at private schools in Florida would still be largely out of the financial reach of most Florida families. If you could just comment on that in the next 10 or 15 seconds that we have left. Oh, yeah, certainly. So, um, again, you know, th this would definitely uh, make it so that you know, you might not be able to afford your private school tuition because right. many private schools charge a lot more than these vouchers. Right. Valerie Crowder reports from Tallahassee for our sister station, WFSU. Joshua Ceballos is WLRN's local government accountability reporter. Thanks to you both. Thanks for having me. Still to come, a Miami native is sworn in as ambassador to the OAS. How will Frank Mora help it face the many challenges in the Western Hemisphere? Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. It took a year and a half, but Miami native and Cuban-American Frank Mora was finally sworn in last month as the U.S.'s ambassador to the Organization of American States. The OAS, based in Washington, D.C., is often described as the U.N. of the Western Hemisphere. Right now, it's facing a raft of serious challenges all over this hemisphere, including Nicaragua, where yesterday hundreds of political prisoners were released. Ambassador Mora is especially qualified to face them. He was most recently 
recently director of Florida International University's Latin America and Caribbean Center. Before that, he was the deputy assistant secretary of defense for the Western Hemisphere under President Obama. He spoke to me this week from Washington. Ambassador Mora, thanks for talking with us. Thank you, Tim. A pleasure. We have to start with this week's surprising news, the release of more than 220 political prisoners in Nicaragua. This is a big diplomatic win for the Biden administration, and in a way, is it one for the OAS as well? It is indeed great to see the unilateral release of these 222 political prisoners. We're just beyond pleased and delighted that this has happened. It was a Biden administration team effort. But it includes other partners who were involved in leading to this moment. Uh, The OAS, with U.S. leadership and others as well, had been approving by consensus a number of resolutions that isolated, that pressured the Nicaraguan government, highlighting the abuses of human rights in that country, ultimately leading to Nicaragua deciding to leave the OAS. Should we take this mass prisoner release as a sign that Daniel Ortega's brutal authoritarian regime is finally responding to the international pressure? I'm not going to raise expectations about what we might expect after the release of these political prisoners. It's an important step, but it doesn't really, in the end, resolve the concerns about the deterioration of human rights and the rule of law there. Fair enough. But this gives us an opportunity to explain to folks what the OAS is and what it isn't. It's not really the UN of the Americas, but what can it do to resolve crises in this hemisphere? So one thing we have to remember, Tim, is that the OAS is the oldest multilateral forum in the world. Even though it started in 1948, its predecessors could date back to the 19th century. And it's an organization that has always been committed to resolution of disputes, trade disputes, conflict, maintaining peace and security. And in the last 25 years, it expressed as one of its core values a commitment to promoting, defending democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And so this organization, you're right, is not like the United Nations. We do not have a security council, the ability to use force to address issues of peace. But the OAS is a forum that highlights challenges, particularly nowadays with democratic erosion. And there are a number of agencies, such as the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, that does excellent work in investigating and bringing to light the abuses of human rights all across the hemisphere, including in the United States. So the OAS's role is mostly pushing, cajoling. And even shaming. Right. You mentioned recently that you fear the biggest obstacle to the OAS's mission may be internal. We know the OAS's Secretary General, Luis Almagro, is under an ethics investigation, but you see more significant problems? You know, the organization historically, Tim, is often a reflection of what's going on in the region. And uh, the region is facing, you know, polarization, fragmentation, erosion, democratic rule, and so on and so forth. So there's going to be differences. But the OAS is based on consensus. And if we're going to pass a resolution, it has to pass by at least a majority vote. And sometimes it's not easy to obtain majority vote when there are so many political or ideological differences. But, for example, on the issue of Nicaragua or the issue of Venezuela, the OAS found a good amount of consensus to pass resolutions on human rights in those countries. And in the case of Venezuela, Venezuela withdrew 
uh, from the organization because it could not withstand the, the light that was shining on the systemic abuses in that country. But of course, the Inter-American Democratic Charter signed in 2001 include suspending members for not following the precepts of the Inter-American Democratic Charter. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring up the Venezuela case because one of the other problems is uh, that, that perhaps doesn't exist when we're talking about the U.N. is that many Latin American countries, particularly left-leaning governments, tend to consider the OAS uh, sort of under the thumb of the United States. The United States doesn't hold that kind of sway. It's a one-person, one-delegation vote, and as I said, it's based on consensus. So I think that kind of rhetoric is perhaps from, you know, the Cold War, but it doesn't really reflect the reality. President Biden nominated you back in July of 2021. Your Senate confirmation was repeatedly delayed because of Cuba politics between the White House and Congress. And I know you've said you prefer not to talk about that. But the fact is the U.S. did not have an ambassador to the Organization of American States even when we were hosting the Summit of the Americas last summer. So now that the U.S. finally has an OAS ambassador, how does that help the OAS move ahead with everything that's on its plate? Yes. When you have a confirmed ambassador, he or she is able to set the agenda and move strongly on the priorities of of the president, which is what we are doing now not just in terms of the resolutions, but also on security, on issues of cyber and border control and development. And that's the indispensable utility and the importance and the relevance of the organization. So let's get into the big challenges the OAS faces right now that are especially important to folks here in South Florida. And these are problems that are also driving one of the biggest crises in the U.S. right now, meaning immigration. And perhaps the most urgent is Haiti. Tell us what the OAS is doing to help restore order in a country that's essentially being taken over by violent gangs. So we're, we're actually in the middle of discussing and hopefully approving a resolution on Haiti that supports a political process. There's a new uh, uh, high transition council in Haiti. Right. And it's a, I think it's a critical step to restoring democratic order, improving security, And that's something that I think we are going to be providing political support for. Excuse me, Ambassador, its role is mainly just making sure that new elections can be held, right? And that's important. Yes. That's important. Mm -hmm. Now, we also agree that the issue of security is critical. Well, exactly. You can't can't hold the elections unless you have the commensurate security. Exactly. So, So, Tim, the United States. Canada, other international partners remain sort of committed to assisting uh, the people of Haiti on this. We want to find an ultimate resolution to this. And we're looking very strongly at the issue of supporting a multinational force that can help provide that security. This has been discussed at the United Nations, as you know. Right. We want to be supportive from the UAS standpoint in that effort. Uh, I don't want to go into a lot of details because I think there's still a lot of conversation. But the United States recognizes the importance of that kind of multinational police force to provide security and stability. Right. Police force. Uh, so, so we wouldn't be talking about so much military boots on the ground, but the OAS can help in strengthening the police capacity in Haiti. And we are actually doing that. So there's, okay. a, there's a group in Haiti, an OAS-funded unit that is helping with municipal policing. It's not a big program, but we are on the ground on that. And, of course, we can't talk about Latin American crises here without bringing up communist Cuba. You're a Cuban-American from Miami, but you also believe the U.S. should engage the island in order to get it to change. 
How does all that affect your own approach to the Cuban problem as the OAS ambassador? Well, you know, Cuba does not have a seat. I mean, they, they are a member, but they decided not to be part of the OAS. Right. The, in 2009, there was a resolution that lays out very clearly sort of certain conditions that have to be met, particularly, as you know, related to human rights and democracy. They have chosen not to, to do that, and so they remain outside. And it's still the responsibility of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights to investigate human rights violations in Cuba, as they did, by the way, after the July 2021 large-scale protests. Mm -hmm. And so the president gave us a charge to address this issue and how to help the Cuban people while making sure that whatever resources we are able to spend doesn't go to the repressive machine of of the regime. You also mentioned to me that you feel the OAS can more assertively engage the hot mess in Central America's Northern Triangle, a big source of illegal immigration, especially the authoritarian regimes in Guatemala and El Salvador? Yes, so we we, we need to work and have been working with with Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador on, on dealing with the issue of migration, particularly the root causes of migration recently you may have seen important announcements by Vice President Kamala Harris of private sector investments in those countries to keep people from migrating. However, we are concerned, Tim, by the Salvadoran government's efforts at weakening uh, freedom of expression, the violation of separation of powers, and in Guatemala the same. I think the, the jailing of reporters, the firing of attorney generals, the unwillingness to prosecute corruption, that is also some grave concern because it undermines the democratic rule of law. We just don't think that's a productive way of trying to resolve the problems of democracy with less democracy, right? So uh, as you've been mentioning here throughout our conversation, I know one of your biggest concerns about Latin America and the Caribbean has been the frailty of democracy, the backsliding of democracy. Last month, we, we saw thousands of Brazilians ransack the government buildings and call on the military to overturn a legitimate presidential election. And a lot of people say they were just imitating what thousands of Americans did here in 2021. So are you hopeful or pessimistic about democracy in the Americas at this moment? I'm always going to be hopeful. That, that, that has to be our, our standard. The Secretary of State, when addressing this issue of democracy and human rights, he said, no, this is not just an issue of principle. It's in our vital national security to defend democracy, particularly in areas where it's fragile. And, of course, we in the United States are no exception. I take advantage of your question, Tim, to sort of remind folks that Brazil's President Lula is visiting Washington and meeting with the President of the United States this week, talking about a number of issues, but also to reaffirm both of our commitment to democracy. Uh, Let's be clear. Brazil conducted exemplary elections. In those instances, we have to be clear, not just the United States, but the region and including the OAS, that our support for democracy is unconditional. Ambassador Mora, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Tim. Frank Mora of Miami is the new U.S. ambassador to the Organization of American States in Washington, D.C. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives, answer the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Thanks for joining us. Gracias, Messi. Obrigado.
WLRN Public Media.